Hello everyone and welcome to my Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and I want to share with you a paper that I read recently at an online conference dealing with philosophical theologies in South Africa. The title of my paper is The Hidden Face of Christ, Chesterton and the Concealment of Divine Mirth. It is slightly more academic than what I usually share here on this podcast, but I really hope that you enjoy it. At least some of what I say I'm sure will be relatable. Siren Kierkegaard tells a parable of a fire that breaks out backstage in a theater. A clown charges out onto the stage to warn the audience about the danger, but because he is already dressed up for his show, the audience members mistake his warning for comedy. They laugh and clap and so fail to respond to the threat. Kierkegaard speculates that the world is likely to end amid general applause like this because so many people believe that what they're witnessing is only a joke. In this story, Kierkegaard sets up a distinction along soteriological lines between what appears and what may be concealed by appearance. Of course, Kierkegaard's clown is a symbol for Christ. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness fails to comprehend it. The people misunderstand the clown partly because of what they expect from the world, the theatrical world that they have entered. What is not anticipated recedes from view. Appearances, G.K. Chesterton notes, have something to do with disappearances. It is this gap and something of the bridging of this gap between appearances and disappearances that I want to address here. However, I want to do so from the opposite perspective to the one we find in Kierkegaard's parable. I regard the opposite perspective as the more pertinent one in our time. In this age, if people miss the news that would save them, it is more likely because they are taking things too seriously. If anything, our clowns are believed at the expense of their clowning. But then we have thinkers like Chesterton who do not accept such a status quo. At the end of his book Orthodoxy, Chesterton makes a claim regarding the pathos of Christ, which was natural and almost casual. But he contends that one dimension of Christ's pathos remained remarkably hidden, and it's therefore worth remarking on, namely his mirth. The word mirth, a synonym for amusement, is the last word of that book. It is jotted down not as a flippant observation, but as an exclamation mark. But because Chesterton offers no justification for attributing mirth to Christ, the question remains open as to whether there is more than a merely subjective reason for his claim. It is, therefore, my aim here to account for this claim on a philosophical and theological basis. I want to articulate how there is in Chesterton's writings, and especially exemplified in his metaphysical thriller, The Man Who Was Thursday, a kind of incarnational phenomenology at work that allows him to reconcile the more explicit dimensions of Christ's pathos with concealed divine mirth. Given time constraints, however, I can only provide a rough sketch of this here. The Man Who Was Thursday opens with a dialogue, or rather an argument, between two poets in Saffron Park. The setting is significant. For one thing, it is a real place and not a mere fictional conceit. Chesterton takes time to articulate it as a place in which being subverts imagining, even as it encourages imagination. 
One young man in the park, for instance, with the long auburn hair and the impudent face, that young man was not really a poet, but surely he was a poem. And an old gentleman with the wild white beard and the wild white hat, that venerable humbug, was not really a philosopher, but at least he was the cause of philosophy in others. Chesterton mocks the scientist who shows up in the park too, that scientific gentleman with the bald egg-like head and the bare bird-like neck had no real right to the airs of science that he assumed. He had not discovered anything new in biology. But what biological creature could he have discovered more singular than himself? What is important right at the outset is not so much the ideas that people in the setting have, but who they are in the flesh. This is a vital thing for understanding Chesterton's work as a whole. In his book, What's Wrong with the World?, he writes, Each human soul has, in a sense, to enact for itself the gigantic humility of the Incarnation. Every man must descend into the flesh to meet mankind. Chesterton is clear to mention that this atmosphere of Incarnation in Saffron Park feels like a comedy, in this place in which reality constantly throws into question the way that people conceptualize it, we find the birthplace of laughter. Although the novel itself is very funny, Chesterton has given it a surprising subtitle. It is A Nightmare. I will say more on this shortly. In this setting, as I mentioned, two poets are arguing. The poets in question are Gabriel Syme and Lucian Gregory. We soon learn that Gabriel Syme symbolizes order and Lucian Gregory symbolizes chaos, although the line between order and chaos is not so clear. It is no mistake that the two characters have names that echo the names of angels, although the connection between Lucian Gregory and Lucifer is less obvious. He is an anarchist who quite literally wants to blow things up with bombs. Chesterton takes anarchy as a synonym for nihilism. It implies the hatred of life itself. The main point of contention between the poets revolves around the nature of poetry. To put it misleadingly simply, Gregory sees art and anarchy as coextensive. For him, to make poetry exciting, the poet must aim to constantly pervert norms. The anarchist claims that an artist disregards all governments and abolishes all conventions. He insists that the poet delights in disorder only. If it were not so, the most poetical thing in the world would be the London Underground Railway. Against this, Syme regards poetry as ordering. Syme believes that the London Underground really is the most poetical thing in the world. This upsets Gregory, who tells Syme that he is talking nonsense. After all, he explains, why do all the clerks and navvies in the railway trains look so very sad and tired? The anarchist speculates that the people on the train are despondent because they know that the train will end up precisely where they expect it to end up. Where is the thrill and the adventure in that? Syme, who is a better poet and I would say a better psychologist than Gregory, refuses to take this appearance at face value. If people can remain so blasé on the underground, it is because they have overlooked and forgotten what disappears from view. They have become habituated to custom and so have forgotten how remarkable the customary is. 
On the surface, everything can seem placid and banal and lacking in spirit, and therefore also lacking in meaning, but this surface is not the whole story. The rare strange thing is to hit the mark, Syme proposes. The gross obvious thing is to miss it. We feel it is epical when a man with one wild arrow strikes a distant bird. Is it not also epical when a man with one wild engine strikes a distant station? Chaos is dull, because in chaos the train might indeed go anywhere to Baker Street or to Baghdad. But man is a magician, and his whole magic is in this, that he does say Victoria Station, and lo, it is Victoria. Chesterton suggests that behind every appearance of order is an occluded battle against disorder. Syme remarks that every time a train comes in, he feels that it has broken past batteries of besiegers and that man has won a battle against chaos. Already in this we sense something of how Chesterton is gesturing to mirth beyond the serious, even if we have not yet grasped the meaning of this. If trains and train schedules seem boring, it is not because they are boring. Behind them is the delight of being able to grant order to the world. There are no uninteresting things, Chesterton writes in Heretics, only uninterested people. Behind the given is an act of creation. To be clear, this is not to simplistically side with order against chaos in the way that one might side with the univocal against the equivocal. The dichotomy is not ultimately as clear as it would seem. Equivocities remain in being itself. The point is that the tension between order and chaos is mediated, and it is in this grace called mediation that we find the hidden work of mirth. Chesterton has a problem with a particular mindset that insists on making the world small, that is, on reducing being to one's conception of being. The poet goes against this tendency and so gives himself over to the call of the real. God made man so that he was capable of coming into contact with reality, writes Chesterton in his biography of St. Thomas Aquinas, and those whom God hath joined let no man put asunder. Sadly, as Chesterton points out, in most important matters, man has always been free to ruin himself. He will ruin his chances of participating in the real. Still, in the archetypal tension between order and chaos, God announces light, and there is light. There is, to use Syme's metaphor, the London Underground. In considering the book of Job that acts as inspiration for the man who was Thursday, and that's a topic that alone deserves several papers and books, Chesterton mentions especially how God announces his entrance by declaring that behind the obvious difficulties of life, there is delight. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, perhaps even suffering hides a mirthful face. The revealed order conceals a mystery, and that mystery suggests transcendental joy. Chesterton invites his reader to look again, to resist taking the familiar as equal to the settling of a matter. How does he do this? Well, importantly, he refuses to let his rhetorical constructions linger as merely rhetorical. 
in the man who was Thursday, for example, he's not trying to position himself within a contingent distinction between the orderly and the chaotic, but wants to aim for an ontological or perhaps phenomenological stability beyond contingency. Even Lucian Gregory's disastrous nihilism stems in part from an unconscious desire to uncover what is going on beneath the surface, and yet he keeps on getting stuck on the surface. Against this, Chesterton asks us to leave the representational world and enter the drama of being itself. In the end, in so far as the plot of The Man Who Was Thursday goes, the bold claims of these two poets cannot be settled except by experience. The poet must become the poem, or must recover the sense that he has always been a poem before being a poet. Gregory invites Syme to attend a meeting of anarchists to see for himself what sort of chaos they are plotting. Before the other members arrive, and before the meeting commences, Gregory explains that he at one time made a habit of disguising himself in various ways. Again, Chesterton draws attention to appearance to suggest disappearance or concealment. However, no one ever believed Gregory's disguises, and so he ended up simply dressing like an anarchist. Again, no one believed him. Somehow, showing the obvious truth became the best way to conceal the truth. No one would expect someone who looks like an anarchist to be an anarchist. If it walks like an anarchist and swims like an anarchist and quacks like an anarchist, it must be a perfectly sensible intellectual with no insidious motives at all. Of course, appearance does not have to mean total disappearance, and that's something to keep in mind. Still, Syme ends up at that meeting of anarchists, each of whom is named after a day of the week. Hilariously, Syme convinces the anarchist council to elect him, not Gregory, as the replacement for the former Thursday who recently died. He does so by sounding far more dangerous than Gregory does, by being in speech more anarchic than the real anarchist. Despite Gregory's protesting, Syme becomes the new Thursday. As this scene among the anarchists reveals, Chesterton renders the line between chaos and order and thus between appearance and disappearance even more confusing, or perhaps more mysterious. The novel shows, through the experience of the protagonist Syme, a constant determination to unmask what appears and thus to reveal what is hidden. Identities are constantly mistaken, then corrected as one by one each of the members of the collective of anarchists is revealed to be a policeman, just like Syme. There's a perfect metaphor in this for revealing order beneath any appearance of chaos. And yet, this disclosure confronts Syme, and so also the reader, with a paradox. Unmasking does not put an end to mystery. Revelation often deepens the mystery, at one significant moment in this story, Siam cries out, Listen to me, shall I tell you the secret of the whole world? It is that we have only known the back of the world. We see everything from behind, and it looks brutal. That is not a tree, but the back of a tree. That is not a cloud, but the back of a cloud. Cannot you see that everything is stooping and hiding a face? If only we could get round in front. This declaration begins to suggest why the story is given the subtitle, A Nightmare. 
symbolically speaking, the antidote to a nightmare is not a dream, which is something pleasant, but the act of waking up. And that's something that is potentially more unpleasant than the nightmare. And yet, the idea that we cannot see the hidden face of things suggests how difficult waking up really is. There is anguish in this. Syme is insistent on the Job-like suffering he experiences in endeavoring to see the hidden face of things. Of course, this has tremendous theological significance. It echoes a scene in which Moses asks to see God's glory in the book of Exodus. God responds that he will make his goodness pass before Moses, but since no one can see his face and live, he will show Moses only his back. There is something of this echoed in what Chesterton writes in his biography of the artist G.F. Watts, who was fond of painting the backs of people. The back is the most awful and mysterious thing in the universe. It is impossible to speak about it. It is the part of man that he knows nothing of, like an outlying province forgotten by an emperor. It is a common saying that anything may happen behind our backs. Transcendentally considered, the thing has an eerie truth about it. Eden may be behind our backs, or fairyland, but this mystery of the human back has again its other side in the strange impression produced on those behind. To walk behind anyone along a lane is a thing that, properly speaking, touches the oldest nerve of awe. As Chesterton more than hints here, knowing the back of things is not to know them, but that we only see the back of things has two implications. First, it means that we necessarily feel in our encounters with the real that there is always more there than we are conscious of. Perception itself, when we allow it to be itself, cannot take things at face value. Second, it means that we must speculate about the nature of the face of things. And yet, as suggested by the first implication, this speculation cannot merely exist at the level of what we are conscious of and what we might be able to articulate. We know this especially in Chesterton's strong sense of the contingent. This is not merely a conceptual category, but is something felt in one's very depths. In this felt sense of the contingent, what appears is decidedly not self-caused. Its meaning is sustained by what transcends it. It is given, but that only means that there is that which gives it, or one who gives it. Perception itself, if allowed to be itself, refuses to take things at face value. It refuses to linger with abstractions and must, like Gabriel Syme does, step into the drama of meaning. Still, we do fall into the trap of training perception to accept limits that are not inherently present within perception, while at the same time refuting and refusing the limits that are there. Perhaps better stated, we have a habit of causing perception to fall into disuse and misuse. If Lucian Gregory sees only the value of chaos, it is because he is not attending to the real. This is a reminder of Chesterton's awareness of how we lose contact with reality. I quote here at length from Chesterton's The Defendant. Religion has had to provide the longest and strangest telescope, the telescope through which we could see the star upon which we dwelt. For the mind and eyes of the average man, this world is as lost as Eden and as sunken as Atlantis. 
There runs a strange law through the length of human history that men are continually tending to undervalue their environment, to undervalue their happiness, to undervalue themselves. The great sin of mankind, the sin typified by the fall of Adam, is the tendency not only towards pride but also towards this weird and horrible humility. This is the great fall, the fall by which the fish forgets the sea, the ox forgets the meadow, the clerk forgets the city. Every man forgets his environment and, in the fullest and most literal sense, forgets himself. This is the real fall of Adam, and it is a spiritual fall. It is a strange thing that men have actually spent some hours in speculating upon the precise location of the Garden of Eden. Most probably we are in Eden still. It is only our eyes that have changed. Note here how Chesterton connects the fall with an over-reliance on our conceptual configurations. We fail to perceive what is right in front of our eyes and so require something that will allow us to reconnect with it. Our abstractions are often a defense against the real. Paul Rowan explains how crucial this passage that I've just read to you is for understanding Chesterton's perpetual concern with how human beings have forgotten who they are. The trouble is not just in the forgetting of the world, but in the forgetting of our very selves, that is, with losing a felt sense of our embeddedness within the drama of meaning. What does this forgetting of self look like? For Chesterton, in sticking with the biblical envisioning of pride as going before a fall, while also noting how this distorts even our capacity for humility, the result is over-seriousness. The prideful do not laugh easily and are, in fact, monstrous in their seriousness. In orthodoxy, Chesterton suggests that man is more himself, man is more manlike, when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial. He is very critical of over-seriousness. Taking hilarity out of the picture causes people to be unhealthily complacent. Over-seriousness produces stale perceptions, and this is not something that Chesterton can tolerate. He writes, The swiftest things are the softest things. A bird is active because a bird is soft. A stone is helpless because a stone is hard. The stone must of its own nature go downwards because hardness is weakness. The bird can of its own nature go upwards because fragility is force. Angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. Pride is the downward drag of all things into an easy solemnity. One settles down into a sort of selfish seriousness, but one has to rise to self-forgetfulness. Seriousness is not a virtue. It would be much more sensible to say that seriousness is a vice. It is really a natural trend or lapse into taking oneself gravely because it is the easiest thing to do. It is much easier to write a good Times leading article than a good joke in Punch. For solemnity flows out of men naturally, but laughter is a leap. It is easy to be heavy, hard to be light. Chesterton's concern is with connection to reality, and seriousness on its own is no guarantee of this. In fact, on its own, it is almost certainly going to ensure disconnection. Chesterton offers that it is the test of one's seriousness to use silly metaphors on serious questions. In fact, a responsible religion can be defended 
grotesquely. It is the test of a good religion whether you can joke about it. He is not encouraging irreverence here. In fact, he sees humor and humanity and humility, which in English are linked etymologically, as connected with an essential vulnerability to being. If you have a good heart, he writes, you will always have some lightness of heart. You will always have the power of enjoying special human feasts and positive human good news. But the heart which is there to be lightened will also be there to be hurt. If Christ could show his sorrows, this is precisely a signal of his capacity for joviality. The same vulnerability to being supports both sorrow and levity. Mirth is not the opposite of seriousness, but it's obverse. The more one suffers, Kierkegaard writes, the more one has a sense for the comic. As the above suggests, Chesterton is not merely encouraging a correct view of things in the sense of providing a checklist of doctrines. He is not arguing for a mere reconceptualization of the real, as if the problem is in our thinking primarily and not in us. Rather, he is encouraging us to embrace what is as lived. This is the central key to understanding his view that Christ's hidden face is mirthful. This is not to explain Christ, but to embrace the paradoxical nature of the Incarnation more fully. Chesterton writes the following on what it means to be human, and already in this we find a hint of how the mirthful points to the more than mirthful. And it is with this brief passage from Chesterton that I will conclude. Man himself is a joke, in the sense of a paradox. He cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot trust his own instincts. He is at once a creator, moving miraculous hands and fingers, and a kind of cripple. He is wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes. He is propped on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among the animals, he is shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter, as if he had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe, hidden from the universe itself. 